0: New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. You're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists about their discoveries of new species that they recently described. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today we're joined by Dr. Bruce Patterson. Bruce is the MacArthur Curator of Mammals at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, and he's here today to talk to us about his paper published in the April issue of The Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society, in which he and his co-authors describe two new genera and three new species of pipistrelle-like bats. Welcome, Bruce.
1: Hi. Thanks very much, Brian.
0: Happy to be here. Pipistrel. And what exactly are pipistrel-like bats?
1: Um, the lead author on this paper, Ara Monagium, who's a world expert on this group, uh, calls them little brown jobs. They're small, <laughs> uh, very widely distributed. So the Vesper bats are found on every continent save Antarctica. Uh, it's the most diversified family of bats. And these are two uh, tribes of this group of bats that are particularly abundant in Africa. And we work through these pipistro bats and we're able to resolve new lineages and provided names for those new lineages.
0: All right. So you mentioned a little bit about their coloration. So they're basically little brown jobs, Right. So they little brown bat type things. Uh, how big are these? You said they're little. Like what describes size variation in these? I'm assuming that there's quite a bit of variation.
1: So most, most of the bats in the U.S. and Canada are Vesper bats. They're, they're small. They range in size from 5 or 6 grams to 15 grams uh, in weight. So up to half an ounce in size. So they're they're pretty tiny. Uh, They all eat insects. They come out early in the evening to fly. And they belong to a group of bats that use frequency modulated calls to echolocate and find their prey feeding largely on the wing. So they're they're aerial insectivores as opposed to gleaners or uh, sally hawk. Uh, foraging techniques that other kinds of bats with different echolocation calls use to find their prey.
0: Interesting. And, and when you say five to six grams, like, give me a, a length on this. Are we talking a few millimeters? Or are we? I mean, when I when I think five to six grams, I think of something that's that's maybe an inch or two.
1: Yeah, uh, it's two or three inches and a head and body length, and a wingspan of no more than ten inches.
0: Okay, so. To some people out there, that sounds like an enormous bat because that's the only bats that they know. But those are actually pretty small in the bat world, right? They, they are. <laughs> and, and how common are these? So I know that we have bats in our area, and one of my favorite things is to sit outside in the evening and watch them fly over at dusk. How common are bats? And that, I'm in the mid upper Midwest. How common are they throughout the United States in general, starting in the U.S.?
1: Well, as, as you know, bats have uh, taken it in the chops here the last uh 10 years or so with the introduction of an invasive fungus uh, that attacks them when they're hibernating. And so many of the little brown bats and their relatives have fallen victim to white-nose syndrome and its decimated colonies throughout eastern North America and is now found in a number of western states as well.
0: Yeah, we were worrying about that here in uh, the western part of our state, and Wind Cave National Park and Jewel Cave uh, National Monument, and uh, they were concerned about that with their bats there. And they they talked about having bat populations there that were close to a million in each cave that have come down significantly. Is this kind of a normal number? H- how often should people be seeing bats in uh, in a non-urban setting?
1: It depends on your proximity to uh, major colonial roosting sites. And Wind Cave is uh, uh, regionally hugely important to <laughs> the bat faunas in your area. So uh, much smaller colonies frequent uh, mines and tunnels and uh, railroad viaducts and other and kinds of, other kinds of roosting structures.
0: You mentioned a little bit about what these things do, and, and we're kind of heading in that direction with this conversation. You mentioned a little bit about what they do. What What is their main ecological role? You said uh, the ones that we're talking about tend to eat insects, right? That's correct. And, and just how strong of an, econo- or of an ecological role do these things play in that insect consumption, just to help our listeners understand?
1: Bats are hugely important as consumers of insects. Uh, in tropical rainforests, it's been shown that bats are control herbivorous insects to a greater extent than lizards and birds combined. So the nocturnal activities of ba- bats own the night owing to their echolocation, owing to their ability to navigate at times when other creatures simply can't. Bats can exploit resources uh, that other organisms are unable to find. And this role is is very important, both in natural ecosystems as well as in human ecosystems. Uh, Some colleagues estimated a few years back that the role of bats in consuming crop-destroying insects contributed a value of $3.5 billion per year to U.S. agriculture. Uh, That is, we would grow $3.5 billion fewer agricultural goods, or we would spend $3.5 billion on pesticides and other kinds of uh, mitigation devices to make up for those losses. So bats are really unsung heroes in in maintaining forests, and in uh, maintaining productive uh, agricultural fields.
0: One of the things that always strikes me, and, and, you know, biologists, we always have a slightly different sense of the world. I find them actually fairly cute. Other people think that they are repulsive looking, uh, but they are nevertheless incredibly important to our environment. And I don't think that that's always appreciated by people, just the volume of insects. I always think about here in this Northern Midwest area, and I know around Chicago, you have problems with these two, the mosquitoes, how many more mosquitoes we would have if it weren't for these bats buzzing around me. They're one of my favorite things to see at night because I know that they're out doing pest control for me. (laughs) Now, we have an idea of what they they do ecologically, even what they, you know, as far as what they eat and their habitat, that sort of thing. Let's talk about the bats specifically in Africa. Let's be a little more general first bats have gotten a lot of attention out of Africa. And some of that has to do with medical importance. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Uh, Yeah, bats have been uh, in the headlines lately and for all the wrong reasons. They've uh, sort of overlooked all the great things that bats do for us and uh, have sort of focused on a, a byproduct of bat natural history. And that is Many, many bats are social, and they live in large colonies. Uh, Bracken Cave in Texas, for example, has 10 million Mexican free-tailed bats roosting in that colony. And when they all give birth, this maternity colony, there are 20 million souls in this cave uh, that's uh, the size of a few city blocks. So uh, the population of Tokyo or Mexico City, all in this cram space, all cheek to jowl huddled uh, on the walls of this cave. And those are very ripe conditions, as we found out in COVID, for the transmission of disease. And so bats, because they're social, have been challenged by insects, by uh, uh, blood parasites, by viruses, even by bacteria, and have fought these off with really excellent uh, immune systems. Uh, They've fought them off with uh, novel DNA repair mechanisms that if we really understood, we might be able to take care of some of our own ailments. Uh, And they've fought them off with high body temperatures achieved through flight, that resemble the fevers that we use to fight off viral infections. And so bats, through their natural history, have managed to keep these dangerous pathogens at arm's length so they can go about their business. But what it means is that a virus or a bacterium that is really lethal or dangerous to a person, uh, a bat can tolerate it, and so through, through no fault of their own, uh, bats have been associated with some of the diseases that have affected people. In no case has it been shown that a bat has actually transmitted these diseases to people. For example, it was shown that uh, a bent-wing bat in West Africa had part of the virus of the Ebola virus in its genome. So we know that it had been exposed to Ebola at some point. But they never isolated Ebola virus in in that bat or any other bat. And so it appears to be bats like the people living in that area have been exposed to this virus. And whereas the bats were able to fight it off, uh, people unfortunately fell victim to it.
0: Yeah, and this has been sensationalized a bit in the news, right? So uh, there's this whole phenomenon of... of something that we've never talked about on this show before, and that's a zoonosis. And that's uh, some sort of pathogen that leaps from another species to humans. We call that a zoonotic event or a zoonosis. And bats are awesome, often blamed to be a reservoir for some of these. That means a, a holding place for it. It doesn't necessarily affect them. And whenever humans come into close contact with bats, particularly in some place like Africa, particularly West Africa, uh, they, they might come into contact with bat feces and then pick it up. That's the notion that has been sensationalized in the news. But as you point out there, we still haven't found direct links between the bats and the humans, have we? Why has that been so ev- ev- elusive, do you think?
1: Uh, it, it certainly suggests that other organisms, other intermediate organisms are responsible. For example, with the, the COVID uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2, the causative agent, the virus responsible for COVID-19, the closest thing we know in the wild to SARS-CoV-2 was isolated years ago from uh, uh, an intermediate horseshoe bat in China. However, the the 4% sequence divergence between the virus in the bat and the virus in people suggest that that virus had been out of bats for at least 45 years, evolving in some other organism and transmitted to people by some other organism. Unfortunately, in the wake of our pandemic, people went after bats vilifying them as being responsible for the economic, uh, social and uh, uh, the the huge impact that COVID's had on our lives, where bats are uh, innocent bystanders in all in all of this to the extent that we have information on the subject. So,
0: and I, I don't think people understand that if we actually went and eradicated bats, that that would actually have a far worse impact on our economy, on our medical status, uh, on, on basically the world. Uh, the number of pests that these things eat the number of plants that they pollinate etc is just absolutely staggering and that and that gets us to another point i wanted to ask you about a little bit earlier with ecologically the ones you talked about here specifically are are um, insectivorous so they're going after insects mostly but there are some other feeding forms within the bats can you tell us a little about some of the diversity of bats that we find as far as this goes i know we're wandering a bit away from the specific paper but this is so interesting
1: Okay, so uh, there are 21 families of bats, and all but two of those families are largely focused on insects. Uh, Two families of bats sort of broke through and began very strong and intimate associations with plants. Those are the old world fruit bats and the new world fruit bats, the phylostomids. Uh, The old world fruit bats cannot echolocate, and so they took on roles as seed dispersers and as pollinators. But their role in the old world forest is limited by the fact that they can't really navigate in closed space. So they can't get down in the shrubbery the way that new world fruit bats can. Uh, but in in both cases, old world and new world fruit bats are key pollinators. Uh, So in the African landscape, the uh, baobab trees that are absolutely iconic, the only known pollinator for baobab trees are the epauletted fruit bats of Africa. Uh, Bananas, another bat-pollinated plant. Uh, uh, Many, many important, uh, agriculturally important products are pollinated by bats, including the, in North America, the blue agave used for um, uh, tequila, <laughs> tequila, right?
0: Yeah, to make tequila, my bane of existence. But that that's a whole different story. <laughs> yeah, and not even that, it's ju- just pollination. There's also, you mentioned seed dispersal as well. So I think of the large flying foxes, which are, of course, a type of bat, and those are known frugivores, right? So they eat a lot of a lot of fruit, and then they just poop out seeds everywhere. And that's a major dispersal mechanism for many types of species of plants, right?
1: Uh, absolutely. And it's been shown uh, many times that birds tend to poop on a branch. And as a result, any seeds that pass through birds fall on the ground below a tree, whereas bats poop on the wing. Uh, uh, bats have very short digestive tracts, so the, the throughput on the fruit that they're eating has about a 25-minute
0: throughput time. So, Oh, my gosh. 25 minutes from the time to <laughs> so entry to exit? They're
1: basically getting some sugars and some vitamins out of this and letting the rest go. And with it are the seeds, are other things that uh, the plant uses to not only find a new place to grow, but it comes in a pre-fertilized package.
0: So that's, a, that's amazing, 25 minutes, because for us, it's 24 to 48 hours for humans, right?
1: Uh, we don't need to fly around with it. <laughs> that's
0: true. That's true. Not only do we not need to fly around with it, but we also don't have a metabolism of a bat either, do we? If I did have a metabolism of a bat, I would not have this dad body that I have now. So that's <laughs> that's how I like to think about that. Now, in this paper, you have several co-authors, of course, and they're spread uh, throughout Africa and a little bit of the United States, and you described two new genera and three new species. So this this is not just three new species, but you've actually elevated some things to the generic level. How did you decide that these were new species? I know you did some molecular work, but then what was it you were looking for morphologically to determine that these were new species?
1: The Vesper bats were the last major group that we tackled. Uh, Ten years ago, my colleague Paul Wabala, Carl Dick, and I began a project on the bats of Kenya. We knew Kenya straddling the equator would have a very rich fauna. We went through published literature and put together keys of how to tell species apart. We then spent five years traveling all over the country collecting samples and have been in the last five years analyzing these samples to understand the variation they contain and how they relate to bats elsewhere in Africa. Uh, The Vesper bats were the last bats we tackled because it's the most difficult group to tell apart, particularly morphologically. Uh, Their uh, existing knowledge of Vespers is far worse off than the other bad families. And Kenya has 12 families of bats are known from Kenya. They're nine for the entire Western Hemisphere. So it's a, it's a very rich fauna. Uh, and so I enlisted uh, the lead author, uh, Ara Monajim, who's a specialist working from Eswatini in South Africa, former Swaziland, and... Ara had worked in South Africa and West Africa and had a very clear understanding of the the Vesper bats in those two regions. We're working in East Africa and have great collections from East Africa, which our previous studies had told us was a real crossroads for African bat populations. And with our dense sampling of East African bats and Ara's understanding of the bats in areas beyond our ken, we were able to put together this picture that told us that we had five new lineages, two of them at a at a very deep level within the radiation of Esper bats. And so those two deep radiations became the two genera and the three smaller ones uh, species.
0: You use this this combination then like like most of the people I have on this podcast. Uh, in fact, I think all of them to this point have used both molecular and morphological techniques to help differentiate between species using uh, the you know basically the DNA of these things to build what we call a phylogeny, a kind of a branches of the tree of life. And then you were able to determine that these are new species. What, what specifically when you're getting down to the species level, you were differentiating between some of these species and you, you had to split one of these groups into two new species, as I recall in the paper. How did you decide besides just the molecular work, like you had to then go in and say like, well, somebody in the field has to be able to tell these things apart. What characters did you point to to say, okay, this is how you're going to tell these apart?
1: So uh, after after we resolved using molecules and both mitochondrial and nuclear genes, the, the integrity of these branches, we... Uh, evaluated their dental and cranial characteristics, which often are used by mammologists in in diagnosing species, and found that they were consistently different. The groups identified with unmolecular terms were differentiated morphologically, we also, uh, through our fieldwork, had echolocation calls for these populations, and were able to characterize the new tax in terms of the frequencies they use while echolocating, and we had bacula, or the penis bones of these bats, and uh, it's a it's a strange fact that. Uh, Many, many mammals have bones in their penis that aid in support of the intermittent structure, but also uh, tend to be highly species-specific in in terms of its dimensions and shape. And so we had bacula that uh, differed really significantly among the the genera that we examined in these pipistrel like bats.
0: So so if I just go out and catch some in the field, I'm not going to be able to tell very easily just by looking at them. I'm going to have to go and kind of do some dissection on these things. Is that what I'm gathering?
1: Yes. And and I think that's a, that's a typical pattern for cryptic species. Groups that contain sure. cryptic species, are they're cryptic because they don't just jump out at you. You need to look at them carefully. You need to understand their variation. And sometimes that variation is very localized and it's only a structure like the baculum or the sh- shape of the f- first molar or something that will will distinguish them
0: yeah and you don't have to tell me as a somebody who works on 1 and 2 millimeter long spiders that <laughs> it can be hard to tell things apart that's for sure it, so you you ended up with two new genera and three new species how did you pick the names for the genera and then how did you pick the names for the species for these things how do we how do we end up with new names for these
1: well it's uh uh, many of the species that we that belong to the new genus, Pseudoromesia, had been previously recognized in the genus NeoRomesia, and Neoromesia was named as a new form of Romesia, which is yet another pip- <laughs> which is another pipistre like that. And so uh, so in part it was a play on words. The other, the other, uh, new genus name, uh, was for something that had been called, uh, a Neoromesia capensis or Pipistrellus capensis, uh, that we named Afronicteris capensis. This is a very widespread bat, unlike most of these, which tend to be localized in distribution. This is a bat whose genetics says that it really is a largely I won't say panmictic, but certainly exchanges genes across much of sub-Saharan Africa. And in recognition of that, we named it Afro-Nictarus, Afro uh, for the African continent and Nictarus, the Greek word for bat.
0: Cool. And then, and then the specific epithets were after, those were patronyms, right? You were naming them after people?
1: Uh, one of them was named after Robert Kidio, who's a professor at uh, McCreary University in Kampala Uganda. The other two were place names uh, in Kenya. One was Kiranyaga, which is the kukuyu word for Mount Kenya. And this is a bat that lives in the Kenyan highlands. And the other was uh, Nyanzi. And Nyanza is the area around Lake Victoria. And it's the place where we found this, this new bat. So. All
0: right. So we got place names and a patronym out of it. Excellent. And why, why should people know about these little bats? So we're, we're in the United States and we don't really think much about things happening in Africa first. So first, let's let let's consider like the people who would live there. Why do the people who live in these areas need to know about these bats? And then why do, worldwide would we need to know about these bats?
1: I was just on uh, the American Museum's website, batnames.org, which uh, provides an ongoing listing uh, of recognized bat species around the world, and there are 509 recognized species of Vesper bat. So this is a highly diverse group. It's found around the world. Uh, many of the new species of bats being described, not all of them certainly, but many of them uh, fall into this this group, and it's a group that has uh, agricultural, uh, medical, and uh, Ecological importance uh, and understanding who the players are so that we can then record where they live, what they eat, uh, where they forage, how they roost. Uh, these are all things that require an understanding of the basic structure of life. So,
0: yeah, and it's if we're going to talk about bats as reservoirs for some of these viruses and other pathogens, we we need to really understand where they are found and who is who, are, who the players are, as you alluded to right there. We don't want to go blaming the wrong bats per se. For example, if we do ever make that actual connection between them, it'd be too easy to vilify all of the players when it's only one who that we need to actually worry about for any sort of safe control or or limiting their population sizes so that we can you know more easily cohabitate with them, that sort of thing. And, and what can we learn from all of these bats that we, we haven't really talked about yet?
1: Well, as, as, I, as I mentioned, bats uh, are renowned for their longevity, whereas a mouse or shrew of the same body size lives and dies in the space of six months or one or two years. A little brown bat in your attic or uh, nearby cave can be 30 years old. How they do that is a matter of exceptional DNA repair mechanisms so that when mutate, uh, mutations happen that might otherwise cause organ failures or uh, cancers, bats can repair those. How do they do that? How uh, uh, And can we, in fact, mimic that in our own systems? Uh, bats have a lot to learn, uh, teach us about that. Bats also, as we've talked about maybe too much already, are very good at controlling potentially uh, dangerous pathogens on their own. Uh, Teaching our own immune systems to mimic bats in that respect would also be extremely helpful for us. So uh, in addition to being beneficiaries of their ecological activities, I think bats have, have a lot to teach us about basic physiology and uh, life mechanisms, a lot of life lessons to be learned from bats.
0: Thank you, Bruce, very much for coming on to this podcast. I appreciate your time. I know that you're very busy and uh, you have a lot going on there at the Field Museum. You always have papers coming out, it seems. And uh, I appreciate your time and efforts for coming onto this podcast and helping educate people about these wonderful organisms. Thank you.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Brian. Appreciate it. It's fun talking with you.
0: Once again, Dr. Bruce Patterson's paper is in the April issue of the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society. And the title of the paper is, A Revision of Pipistrel-like Bats in East Africa with the Description of New Genera and Species. See the episode details for a link to his paper, as well as a link to Dr. Patterson's profile page at the Field Museum. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash New Species Podcast.